Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. So last week we looked at Yeshua's words when he said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And how he says that God's law will endure as, at least as long as this heaven and this earth. That even in the smallest letter, even the least stroke of a pen that distinguishes one letter from another, these things will not pass from God's law. And not just his, the letters and the words that he make up, but the commandments as well. And the obligation to do them and teach them. Today, I want to talk about the heart of the law. The heart of God's law speaks to our heart. By that, I mean that the core, the center, the most critical part of God's law, the greatest two commandments, speak not directly to our outward actions. They speak to the condition of our heart, to our loves, the things we cherish, that which motivates us. Not that they don't have anything to do with our outward actions. They have enormous impact on them. Because our actions, our words, all flow from our heart. I'd like to start by looking at Isaiah. Because in Isaiah's day, uh, God took the people of Isaiah to task for their sins. And right off the bat here in chapter 1, he begins in verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. And so we see here, uh, he uses, among other things, he uses some very general words for their evil deeds, you know, evil, iniquity. In terms of specifically what is he calling out, uh, he does name a few things. He says, he talks about oppression, the lack of justice, the need for, uh, particularly in relation to widows and the fatherless. He even says, your hands are covered in blood. He's talking about murder here. Pretty serious things. So we can see that, yeah, you know, see why God takes them to task for such things. 
But what's interesting is that he's not just taking them to task for those things that we readily say, oh, yeah, that's terrible. He takes them to task for their sacrifices, for the incense that's offered in the temple, for their new moons and Sabbath days, for observing the Moedim, the appointed times, and for their feasts their, and, and their prayers. And in the midst of all this, he, said, he makes this statement. He says, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? And more than one time, as I've, as I've read through these words, I've said to God, what do you mean, who required this of you? I mean, didn't you require these things? I mean, we can go back to, you know, Leviticus and see where he describes how the sacrifices are supposed to be done or, or what his holy days are. We can look at numbers where he talks about the particular sacrifices for the new moon, for the Sabbath, for, for each of the holy days. In Exodus, he gives the instructions for the building of the tabernacle, including the altar of incense and the very particular recipe for the spices that are to be mixed together to make this incense. So why does he say, who has required this of you? If they're doing, if these things are things that he's commanded, why is he getting on their case about it? Why does he make this statement? Obviously, he knows what his commandments are. And he doesn't seem to think that what they were doing is what he commanded. To understand this, let's look at Samuel. Um, God says to Samuel, stop mourning for King Saul because I rejected him. But I have found for myself a king among the sons of Jesse the Bethlehemite. So he sends Samuel to Bethlehem to anoint one of Jesse's sons, to be king. And when he arrives, he holds a sacrifice and he invites Jesse and his sons, which includes Jesse's firstborn, Eliab, to the sacrifice. And when they arrive, we read in 1 Samuel 16, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. Because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So when we read about what the people were doing in Isaiah's day, when it comes to their religious observance, uh, the sacrifices, the incense, the, the prayers, these things, we say, as we look on the outward appearance, we say they're doing what God commanded, at least in this regard. But God looks on the heart. We see somebody coming into the temple courts, bringing their sacrifice to offer it to the Lord. But what does God see? He sees a heart full of hypocrisy, greed, violent thoughts. And I imagine he says, ooh, 
what's that that just walked into my house? Next slide. Roaches have been nesting deep within the couch itself. Oh, doesn't that just creep you out? Okay. I don't suppose that God is at all squeamish, but I think he is revolted by the condition of people's hearts often when we come to him and we pretend to do the things he's claiming, he's saying we should do, yet we do them with evil hearts. And I don't think that that the... uh, the analogy to cockroaches is overdone either. He says in Isaiah 6, 64, verse 6, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. So what he's saying about the people of I, in Isaiah's day is that they, they have this form of godliness. It looks to us like what God commands, but he doesn't see it that way because he sees that their heart is not right before him. It looks, perhaps, to us who see the outward part of it like it's what he commanded, but it doesn't look to him who sees the heart at all like what he commanded. David understood this David, this man after God's own heart, of course, we know he sinned big time in the matter of Uriah. And after being confronted by the prophet, though, he repents. And he writes Psalm 51 at this time. And he says in verse 16, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In other words, he's saying, if I could bring a burnt offering and that would like, you know, make you satisfied, everything would be okay, I would be all over it. But he knows that's not going to be accepted. He knows that God is far more concerned about something he considers much bigger. He's concerned about the condition of David's heart. He wants David to recognize his sin for what it is. He wants David's heart to be grieved over his sin, even as the heart of God is grieved over his sin. And then David goes right on to say, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Well, he just said you will not delight in sacrifice. And now he says, then will you delight in right sacrifices. So which is it? Does he want the sacrifices or does he not? He doesn't want them if the heart isn't contrite, if the heart isn't repentant. Because then they're just a bunch of hypocrisy. Because he sees right through all that. We can fool ourselves. We can fool others. We can't fool him. 
But when we come in repentance, then our sacrifice is acceptable to him. Yeshua talks about this in Matthew five twenty three. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. If you've wronged your brother and you're coming with your sacrifice, hey, God, here's my gift to you. Aren't you pleased with it? No, he's not. So don't even offer the sacrifice. Go. Get right with your brother. Make amends. Love your neighbor as yourself. Then come and your sacrifice will be accepted. And so there can be the appearance of godliness, the appearance of keeping God's law. And yet, if the heart is wrong, It's not what God commanded. Isaiah has a beautiful illustration of this. It's the Song of the Vineyard, chapter 5. It starts out, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines and built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. Or some translations say sour grapes. So that's the song. And then God speaks. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts the house of Israel, and the men of Judah, his pleasant planting, and he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So God, as a vineyard, is coming and looking for grapes. He's looking for the fruit. Why do we plant vineyards? Just to make, take pretty pictures? I mean, that's nice. We like that. But that's not why people plant vineyards. We plant vineyards because we want the fruit. We want to eat the sweet grapes. We want to eat the raisins. We want to drink the grape juice. We want to make wine and enjoy it. God comes, and he's looking for fruit. There's something there that looks like the fruit it's supposed to produce until he takes some of it. What's this? It's bitter. He says he looked for justice and found bloodshed. He looked for righteousness and found an outcry. 
And there's a play in words in Hebrew here, and it's not just a mere curiosity or something kind of interesting. It actually goes directly to the point that God is making here. So the sentence in Hebrew is, Vaikav the mishpat, vahine mishpach. Letzedakah, vahine, tsa'akah. Do you hear the similarity of the words? Let me line them up for you. Next slide. On the right, we have mishpat and mishpach. Mishpat, justice. Mishpach, bloodshed. On the left, tzedakah, righteousness. And below it, tzedakah, an outcry. And next slide. You can see the difference highlighted there. A single letter from each pair of words is what's different. These words sound very similar. They look very similar. And actually, this is the, the script, the modern, uh, well, the Babylonian square script that we use nowadays. Isaiah lived before the Babylonian captivity. He wrote the old script, what we call Paleo-Hebrew. And you can see here, this is the, these word pairs in the old script. See how similar they look, particularly on the left, Tzedakah and Tzedakah. If you read quickly, you might mistake one for the other. And so these words, very similar sounding, very similar looking, but their meaning, their meanings are radically different. They're practically antonyms. So God is saying there is something that may look like the fruit, but on the inside, it is totally wrong. It is totally a different thing. And this wasn't just a problem in Isaiah's day. It was a problem in Yeshua's day, too. It's a problem all the time. Yeshua said in Matthew 23, verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee! First, clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear to be righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Hypocrisy and lawlessness. We may try to keep various commands of God, but if we are missing the heart of God's law, that is, we don't have the right heart. We've missed it entirely. So, in other words, outward religious observance without a right heart is no obedience at all. Let me say that again. Outward religious observance without the right heart is no obedience at all. Or to put it in different terms, keeping the law while neglecting the heart of the law isn't law-keeping in the least. Keeping the law while neglecting the heart of the law isn't law-keeping in the least. When asked what the greatest commandment is, Yeshua answered in Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. Some translations say hang all the law and the prophets. That's a little closer to the sense of the, the Greek word. They're like the pegs on which the rest of it is supported. If you don't have these two pegs, all the rest of it just falls to the ground. This is the heart of God's law. It's the greatest commandments, and they speak to our heart, to our motivations, our intentions, to the things that we hold precious and dear, to the things that motivate us. The first is that we are to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind. In other words, every ounce of our being, every fiber in our body. In a word, supremely. We are to love him more than anything else in all of creation. Of course, the problem is that man in his sinful condition doesn't quite love God that way. We love ourselves supremely. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, you've got to look out for numero uno. You've got to look out for number one. And people who say that don't mean you've got to look out for God. It's not God they're talking about. They're recognizing that each person considers himself most important. In our sinful condition, to each, each one of us considers me and my needs the thing which is most important to look out for the most important to pursue. In other words, we love ourselves supremely. And there's a problem with that, obviously, because in our hearts there is only room for one numero uno. You cannot love God with all of your heart, soul, and strength while you're busy loving yourself with all of your heart, soul, and strength. The two simply don't go to one together. Yeshua said you cannot serve two masters because you'll either love the one and hate the other or you'll love the other and hate, hate the first. You, you can't do it. It's not possible. You can only have one that you love supremely. And when we love ourselves supremely, we're saying the one who created the entire universe, who spread out the galaxies with his hand, who made all the incredible things in this world, including ourselves, made us from dust and breathed life into us. When we observe the the beauty of what he's made, the ingenuity, the vastness, the creativity, the artistry, when we observe his love, his justice, his compassion, his mercy, his faithfulness, his wisdom, his goodness. There is nothing in this universe or beyond that is of greater value and magnificence and glory and beauty than him. Nothing is more worthy of our love. And yet for us to say, no, in my actions, in my deeds, 
I'm more important than you. My desires are more important than what you want. My pleasures are more important than your commands. Isn't this not the essence and the depths of sin? When God's law speaks to our heart and says, you must love God with all of your heart, soul, and strength, we're in a sort of a bad position. Because the only way we can keep that commandment is to take the thing which we love the most, which we cherish the most, and we've got to yield it and give it up. We have, in a word, in a few words, we have to die to ourselves, to our pleasures, our passions, our love. We have to let go of the thing we hold dearest more than anything else in the entire world. And in our sinful condition... We are never going to do that. We will never let go. So when the heart of God's law speaks to our heart, how do we respond? Some people reject God and his law entirely. They go off into hedonism, pleasures. They believe atheism because it's convenient. It excuses them from responsibility. Others take, recognize the goodness of God's law, the fact that he obviously exists, and yet when his law speaks to our heart, we don't want to really accept that. We can't without letting go of everything we hold dear. So instead, we kind of ignore the heart of God's law. We busy ourselves with outward observances. And Yeshua talks about that. Um, he he uh, addresses the Pharisees in his day, saying, you know, you, you, you wear your phylacteries long and your, your, your seat seat, I mean, phylacteries wide, your seat seat wide, long, and you stand and make big prayers to impress people. And... He's not impressed at all. We, we, we read his words about them. And so we hollow out. We, we, we do open heart surgery on the law of God. We gut it. And we're left with a hollow shell. It's empty. And indeed, we can't even keep that. So we get rid of other parts that are inconvenient, particularly parts sometimes that deal with our neighbor. And that's what we, we see in Isaiah's day. They were guilty of bloodshed. They're guilty of injustice. And Yeshua, uh, speaking of the Pharisees in his day, he says, he says, you swallow up widows' houses. And, and we add things to his law because they're easier for us to do, and then we can look good. We can convince ourselves we're really keeping his law and convince others that we're righteous and good. So, for example, in Matthew 15, the Pharisees, some of the Pharisees and scribes come to Yeshua in Jerusalem and they say, Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, 
And why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, well, what you would have gained from me is dedicated, given to God. Then he need not honor his father. And so you take your tradition that you have made, and so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And so we, we reduce his law. We replace parts of it. We add to it, even though Moses said, do not take away from these commands or add to them. In fact, if we say, you know, if we say, well, what does it mean to observe God's law? What does it mean to keep it? What, what does that look like in practice? If we look at various Christian traditions, well, they uniformly say that parts of God's law have been done away with. So at best, you get only an incomplete picture. So we may look at rabbinic Judaism and say, well, they keep the law. Do they? Were the Pharisees in Yeshua's day keeping the law? Because rabbinic Judaism is, they're the heirs of the Pharisees of Yeshua's day. And there were some serious problems in Yeshua's day. And, you know, in rabbinic Judaism, you know, it's not, not that everything is bad, but in rabbinic Judaism, you've got, I mean, you have ideas of legal fiction, okay, ways to get around God's laws. Um, you have all kinds of things that have been added to it, and there's a focus on the externals. And if you do the right things, that's what matters. But that's not what Yeshua says. It's that we have the right heart. That's what matters most. And from that heart flow the outward actions. And, you know, back in Matthew 22, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this is perhaps a better measure of whether we really love God or not, is how we love our neighbor and how we treat them. We see that was part of what he was taking the people of Isaiah's day to task about was, among other things, how they were treating their neighbor. And Yeshua addresses the same thing with the people of his day. It's a better measure of how we love God because it's more practical. Uh, He says, John says in 1 John, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. There's only, you know, you you cannot love your brother as yourself when you love yourself supremely. Because there's only room in your heart for one numero uno. You cannot love another the same way. The only way you can possibly love your brother the way you love yourself is when you love God supremely. When you love him with all of your heart, soul, and strength. 
That does not exclude love for yourself, but it means it's a distant second. And you can love your brother with that same measure of love that you have for yourself when the loves of your heart are rightly aligned because you love that which is most worthy of your love. So how do you treat your neighbor? How do you... How, how do you treat the, uh, the people you're close to? How do you treat your, your coworkers? How do you treat the guy next door, literal neighbor? You know, the guy with the noisy dog or the people who have parties late at night or that don't pick up their yard? How do you speak about them before others? How about the other, the other drivers on the road? How do you treat them? You cut in front of them because more important for you to get where you're going than for them to get where they're going? How about the people in your own home? Your husband or your wife? When you have a disagreement, how do you handle that? How about your children? Do you blow up at them? Do you lose your temper? Or your parents? Or your brothers and sisters? Or a roommate? Yes, we can be nice to people when it gets us good things. We can be nice to people when it doesn't cost us much. But when push comes to shove, when the things that we care most about are at odds with other people and what they're doing, we quickly find out where our true loves are. You say, yeah, but you don't know what she did to me. You weren't there, and you didn't hear what he said. Okay, you're right, I don't. But you're making excuses. Like Adam. Well, the wife that you gave to me, she gave it to me, and and I ate. But David, a man after God's own heart, When he came to repentance, he didn't make excuses. You don't read in Psalm 51. You don't read in the book of Samuel anywhere where he says, look, she was on a roof taking a bath. I mean, come on. What would any warm-blooded male want to do? And that guy, I mean, look, I I tried to work things out. The guy wouldn't go down and be with his wife. What else was I to do? He doesn't make any excuses for himself. He makes no excuses. He comes in repentance and grief over what he's done and seeks the mercy and forgiveness of God and commits himself to God in his mercy. So we, we rationalize. We make up excuses. Why? Well, God has given us a conscience. And the way our conscience works is that it takes what we know to be true, it compares it to our actions and to the intents and motives of our heart, and it renders a verdict. It either says, well done, or it says, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, uh-uh, don't do that. Your heart's wrong. Your actions don't, don't go that way. And when we've sinned, that was wrong. You did what was wrong. And a guilty conscience is a very painful thing. God has given it to us. In part, it's punishment for the evil we've done. But it should, should 
lead us to repentance. When what we know and what we do, what we know and the condition of our heart aren't congruent with one another, and our conscience is warning us and cond- or condemning us, what should we be doing? We should come in repentance. We should get our heart right. We should get our actions right. We should, to the extent that we can, we should right the wrongs we've done. Of course, there's another option. You can pervert your thinking. Because your conscience takes what you know and compares it to your actions and deeds. When you don't want to change your actions and deeds, you don't want to surrender what's dear to your heart, you can instead convince yourself that really, that was justified. Really, I'm okay. And so we pervert our understanding. Paul talks about this in Romans uh, 1, verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. For they are without excuse. Though they knew God, they did not honor him as God and give him or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so this is our condition. Instead of fixing the problem, we make a problem out of We make a greater problem. We deny the truth. We rationalize. We lie to ourselves to convince ourselves that really we're okay while we continue in our evil deeds, while we continue with a wrong heart. The law may come and tell us you're wrong. But when somebody comes to you and says, hey, you messed up, We rarely respond like David. Usually our response is to be defensive. The law can point out to us the righteousness of God. It can point out to us our failing. But it can't deal with that fundamental problem of sin in our hearts. How do we change? How can we be brought to the point of letting go of the thing we hold dearest In all the world. Paul says in Romans 7, 24. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Through Yeshua, Messiah, our Lord. He is the one who can bring us to repentance. How does he do it? How does he draw us? In Romans 2, 4. Paul says, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. It's the kindness of God that comes to us. In Romans 8, 3-4, we read, For God achieved what the law could not do because it was weakened through the flesh. That's our sin. 
It wasn't a problem with the law. It's a problem with us. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and concerning, uh, and concerning sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirements of the law may be fulfilled in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So when Yeshua comes and he dies for us as a sacrifice for our sin, when we were his enemies, when we were in rebellion against God, when we said, I'm more important than you, creator of the universe, the most amazing one that ever existed and ever will exist. No, I'm more important. My desires are more important. My pleasures are more important. My reputation is more important. He, we deserve his punishment is what we deserve. And yet, in his great and mercy, great mercy and abounding love, he comes and he suffers humiliation and brutality to take what we deserve upon himself. And when we grasp that overwhelming mercy and grace and love for us who are totally undeserving of it, that is what has the power to melt the hard heart. That is what has the power to finally bring us to our knees and yield to him. Romans 5, 8 and 10. Our God shows, but God shows us his love for us that while we were still sinners, Messiah died for us. For if we were enemies, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? He has so much blessing he wants to pour out for us. Paul says elsewhere, no mind is conceived of you know, the glory that awaits us. And his, his kindness and generosity toward us is just beyond measure. It's over the top. And so in Romans 2, we read, for circumcision, verse 25, for circumcision is indeed a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. That's what we saw in Isaiah. That's what Yeshua was talking about with the Pharisees, who whitewashed tombs. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. And, of course, he's alluding to, he's not making up the idea of circumcision of the heart. He's, he's alluding to Moses, who says in Deuteronomy 10, circumcise your hearts and don't no longer be stubborn. And so he's saying the circumcision has to be of the heart, not just outward signs. You know, when, the, when we have the Torah scroll and it parades around, the tradition is that we keep our eyes on the scroll. You don't want to turn your back to it because you don't want to symbolically, you don't want to be saying in a symbolic way that I, I don't care much about God. It's law. I'll turn my back on it. No, may our eyes always be on it. And when it comes around, we reach out. And we, 
with our tzitzit or with something else. Touch our lips. May his words be in our mouth. And if these symbols are true of what's in our heart and the deeds that come from it, they are valuable symbols. If they remind us that we're straying from that and we're brought to repentance, renewing our commitment to him and to his word, to love him and to walk in it, then they are valuable symbols. But if they're just things that we do, oh, they're, they're no better than going through the rosary, you know? A bunch of vain words. Will the music team come up? So he says here about circumcision. When you have a baby boy to be circumcised, does he do it himself? No, no. You need a moil, right? You need somebody who's an expert on how to do this, who comes and performs the circumcision. So as a, we need a circumcised heart. We need a spiritual moil. And Paul tells us who that is. A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Because it's the Spirit of God who can bring the truth of God to shine in our hearts to convict us of our sin. It's the Spirit of God who can open our understanding to the immensity of what Yeshua has done for us. His great mercy and his love. It is the Spirit of God taking these things who can speak to our hearts through his law to draw us to him. So that we come in repentance. So that we finally yield. We die to self. Giving up what is most dear to us. In order to live for what is most worthwhile. And so Paul says in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you therefore brothers. By the mercies of God. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God. Which is your spiritual worship. This is the heart of God's law. It's coming to him with a right heart, responding to his love and his mercy and his grace to love him supremely and love our neighbor whom he loves with the same love that we love ourselves. Because if you love, some, if you love God, you will love those he loves. You will care about the things he cares about. Heavenly Father, you are worthy, you are magnificent, and your love is beyond full comprehension. Oh, Lord, make us more and more aware of your sacrifice as a father, Yeshua, of your sacrifice as a man. You left the majesty of heaven to come and be down here with a bunch of evil people to be spurned, to be humiliated, to be brutally beaten and killed. All for us. You did it for the joy set before you. Because you love us with an amazing, overwhelming love. Lord, melt our hard hearts. Help us to see clearly the fundamental moral choice we must all make 
who we love the most. And may we go wholeheartedly after you. May the heart of your law